and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. J.P. Nurbin is a best-selling author, leadership coach, and he's the founder of Talk Culture Consulting, which is a leading global sports consulting and leadership coaching business. And J.P. and I actually got connected when he was looking into Georgetown's executive coaching program, which is a program that I went to. And I actually recommended, hey, you got to check this out. And he did. He went through the program and we've since talked about what he's learned and the power of polarity and all kinds of interesting themes that both of us were fortunate enough to continue our education at Georgetown with. And continuing education is how I think of JP. Uh, His mission is to help leaders in their teams achieve their full potential. And he does it through one-on-one coaching, consulting, and building community. Both of us are fond of creating retreat spaces, of providing one-on-one coaching. And at our core, I think both of us 
are lifelong learners, not just because we like to say that, but because we want to learn so we can serve the people that we work with. And JP, there's no question in my mind, uh, loves to learn. He reads a book a week. He's constantly trying to find new information so that he can pour into the people that pay him money to work with them. I'm no different in that regard. There are going to be some differences in this conversation that I think you'll pick on, pick up on quite quickly. JP loves to do hard things. He loves to challenge himself physically. I don't necessarily love doing that. So we'll talk about that. We also talk about the idea of transformational leadership, which is a theme that JP has written extensively about. He talks about it in his book. His first book, which is called Calling Up, is all about the power of transformational leadership instead of transactional leadership, which is often glamorized and glorified in a lot of different ways in our business world. So JP and I go at it a little bit when it comes to transformational leadership, but I think where we align completely on is the power of culture, the power of leadership and leaders ability to influence culture and then culture's ability to impact people and creating a specific and intentional environment and how important that is for organizations and teams if they want to thrive. His second book, which is it's really, really good. It's called The Culture System. JP has done a deep, deep dive into how to create an intentional and specific culture. And he's done a deeper dive than I have. So a lot of this conversation is about how you can embrace culture, but it's also about this idea of embracing pain and not being afraid of pain. So there's a mix in this conversation that I think you're really gonna like, where we're gonna talk about JP and his desire to grow and honestly, like his strong desire, maybe even obsession with getting better, improving, learning, and how pain is often linked to growth. And then there's this other component that speaks to culture and the power of an environment and what an environment can do to change how we all behave and how we act. And JP has done this with some of the leading institutions, teams, and organizations in our world. Uh, he's worked at places like Stanford and Harvard and University of Texas. And he's also worked in the corporate world at PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Chick-fil-A. So JP is one of the go-to people when it comes to building culture and consulting people on how they can do so. So pull up a seat, put in your earbuds, and give this a listen. Here is JP Nurbin on how you can embrace pain and embrace an intentional culture. Here we go. JP, we just spent about 15 minutes talking about a variety of things, and I felt as though we could have kept going. And I know we had a call previously to discuss your coaching uh, experience going through the Georgetown program, which I had the good fortune of also going through. So there's so many through lines that I'm not sure exactly where today's conversation is going to go. But one through line where we don't have anything in common is you like to run ultra marathons. I, since tearing my ACL eight years ago, loathe running. I actually used to like going for jogs uh, through the city. Um, but never marathons, never halves, uh, you know, maybe a 5k in there and, and I could, I could pull that off, but talk about ultra marathons. When did you get into it? Why did you get into it? And what's it like for you to compete, uh, at ultras? Yeah, man, I, I ran a marathon in 2016, 2017, 2017 in Harrisburg, which is like super flat Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, like the easiest marathon you could run. Up to that point, I had, the furthest I, I I had run was maybe 10K, and I just absolutely suffered and just nearly died and said, my gosh, I will never run on a marathon again. But then in 2022, I read, 
was 2021. Around that period of time, I read Michael Easter's book, The Comfort Crisis. And he talks about Masogi's. It's a great book worth checking out, but just the value of doing hard things. And I live in Ireland now, and there's this amazing trail called the Carryway Trail, which is in Southwest Ireland in the mountains there. And I'm obsessed with you know the county of Kerry, which is in the Southwest area. It's a beautiful area. And I heard this trail had an ultra marathon run around the same time I read Easter's book. Now, up to this point, I have run maybe five kilometers tops between that marathon I ran and reading that book. I said, all right, this is my Masogi. I'm going to go run the Carryway, which is 200 kilometers um, running. And there's about 9,000 meters of incline over that. And it's one of the toughest ultras in all of Europe because of the conditions, the weather, you're running through fields, the navigation, you're running through the night. And so I set out there and started running smaller ultras building up towards that to then build up, you know, a year later of running that actual massive uh, ultra, which is the carry away. And I did that in 37 and a half hours. Um, and I've run a few since then, but, you know, I wouldn't say it's my passion, but I definitely love what growth comes from the experience of just doing something ridiculously hard. Okay. Uh, for our American audience, give us a sense of how many miles that race was. Sorry, 120 miles. Okay. And okay, doing hard things, sure. Walk us through the 120 miles. What was it actually like for you? What did it feel like? And what was the experience like? Um, it was actually easier than the three other ultras I had run prior to that point. Um, I had gone through a few experiences training learning experiences. Like one time I got up at like 2 a.m. in the morning in February and went to this mountain in Ireland and just said, I'm going to run there in the dark because I need to familiarize myself with the dark. Well, I didn't bring any rain gear. It started to rain, even though rain was in the forecast, which is not, shouldn't be surprising because it's Ireland, right? But I go out there and I just get absolutely soaked. I nearly freeze to death on top of this mountain, right? It's in the dark. It's The wind is going 50, 60 miles an hour. And that was an experience, right? In and of itself, just running five miles in the dark. I ran a 50 kilometer, which is just a little bit over, a, you know, a marathon, which is 44 kilometers, 26 miles. I, I ran that and halfway through, I went into like full on body cramps, right? So like this, every step of the way in my training, I kept failing massively, but I just kept learning from those failures. Um, my first night run, you know, got lost, navigation, the challenges, um, I think every step of the way you just kept learning, you know, something new about yourself, uh, as well as just how to maybe prepare and to, to focus uh, on those things. The thing that changed for me, most of all up, you know, in that last ultra that I did for my big one, that the 200 kilometer, the biggest thing was up until that point, I was doing this in isolation. It, what I mean by that is I was trying to do this challenge. And I believe to like prove myself or, you know, prove, you know, just, just to grow, I had to do it all alone. But for this, you actually need to have a crew member. Like, so I got my best friend to fly over to Ireland and he crewed for me, which meant he was at seven different stops to give me food, run a massage gun on me, stretch me out, you know, pump me up and encourage me. But also prior to that, I would also run. I'd be like, I would just stay in my own zone. I wouldn't talk to other people on the trails. You know, there's like a couple hundred people out there, right? I was just like, I'm on my own zone. I'm in my own head. But I started to actually engage with other runners on the carryaway run. 
I started to check in on them. I started to stop on, you know, encourage them. Um, you know, they would, if they wanted to offer help to me, I, I, I was open to that, you know, like you just, you started to connect and you started to see that when you're doing hard things, looking for help, asking for help is actually strength. It's not weakness. And I think that was something that was so profound in my life. Cause up until that point, I took such pride in being like the entrepreneur, the self-made man. And all of a sudden it was like, actually it's, it's to rely on my best friend, to rely on these people out on the trails. Like that is actual true strength. I think that was one of the greatest lessons I learned in that run. First time I heard of Misogi was from Kyle Corver. There was an article, I think it was in like out, outward magazine or nature magazine. I forget which magazine it was in where him and some buddies would train in the off season and they'd carry these big boulders underwater. Um, and, and it was a Misogi. And so then they would do like a, uh, paddle boarding trip <laughs> and like, you have this NBA stars making millions of dollars and every summer he would challenge himself. And he credited that with one of the things that changed for him when he turned 30 and he had a great career after 30 actually became an all-star. And it's interesting because for him, it was very much collaboration. There was a team of people that were working on this thing together for you. It's interesting that you go to that space where once you started looking beyond yourself and you were part of something bigger than yourself, you were actually able to perform better. And that may be a nice transition for us to think about culture and the power of the we or the collaboration or the environment or the ecosystem. Before we go there, had that ever crossed your mind as you're talking about culture, you're talking about environments, but you're saying I'm an entrepreneur and I like to do things sort of my way and even compete uh, sort of as an individual in these ultras. Had you ever connected those dots prior to that experience or was that something new that you had learned going through it? I think when it comes to the short answer is no. I think there are certain elements of running your own business. Uh, now I was a coach for, for many years, but when I started to run my own business and I started to build a team around me is I recognized, well, my business is leadership and culture. So I better be at least decent at this whole leadership thing. Like, right. You can't have a business around leadership and culture than have a crappy culture and be a poor leader. So, um, you know, I, I, but I think that that's a little bit different than what you're kind of getting at. I think at the end of the day, like, yes, this, this, this was a big turning point and a shift for me for sure. Well, it's interesting because I think about myself, like one of my book concepts that I'm toying around is all about collaboration and how there's sort of this myth. And I'd be curious to get your perspective living in Ireland now, as opposed to the U S but there's this myth of like the singular genius entrepreneur that creates you know, Apple or Microsoft or Google or whatever it is. And if you go underneath the hood, you actually see that America and our success has less to do than from the individual capitalist and more to do with the ability to work together um, and to collaborate. And it's interesting. I was talking to my coach, Miranda, who I've since introduced you to. And I said to her, yeah, I got this like idea around a book around collaboration. And she gently asked me, she's like, have you thought about writing it with someone? <laughs> and I said, I have not thought about that at all. And it is, it's an interesting thing where people that I think are creatives or creators or entrepreneurial, at least for me, I usually have a vision, see the vision and then go to work and love to dream and create it. 
but I often don't think about who I can bring with me and who to collaborate with to make that thing better. And for you, uh, living in the culture space, I'm curious as to why that may be. Why is that? And we see that with the head coaches, like they're an individual, they focus on that and maybe they don't think about their assistant coaching staff in a more intentional way. Or we see it with individual athletes, right? You think of a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant when they first come into the league and they want to be a superstar and they want to be the best ever, but it's not until Phil Jackson gets them to collaborate and make their teammates better that they really achieve superstardom. And so I'm wondering about this paradox that I think exists where there's like this individual burning drive or desire that keeps us blind to maybe opening ourselves up to ask for help or to work with people to get to where we want to go. Yeah, it's, that's such a, a great point you're pointing out there because I think when I look at even just my growth as a coach, there was that moment where I said, okay, I need a coach. I, I need someone to help me make this change. That took a lot to get to that point. I kind of fell into it, honestly. It was less of a real super conscious choice. I, I would say that there's probably two, and I, I like to talk about mind traps from Jennifer Garvey Berger's work around mind traps and just how our brain works against us oftentimes as leaders. She talks about a couple of them. One of those being um, our desire for control. Like we just want to control everything. Like our brain works in that. And so I think that's one thing is like, well, I have this vision and I don't want to give up control over how things go. I think that's a big thing. I think also um, being, there don't want to be the mind trap of ego, right? So it's just, just what does this say about me that I can't do this by myself? And I think that's the, the big thing. When I look at me as a coach for years, I struggled. And I see this in our coaches is I wanted control over everything. And I didn't want to give up maybe decision-making to other people. And you'll see this, you might even get some leaders that allow other people to offer their input, but they're still going to have final say on all the really, really important things. And I think that there's actual real empowering is giving the athletes in your group decisions, or even your coaching staff opportunities to make decisions that you might not even disagree with but you're going to entrust them to take ownership of it and, and know that they might do it a little bit differently. It might look a little bit differently than you. you, you. And doesn't mean that you're doing it in isolation. You can collaborate. You can offer each other feedback. You know what we're seeing that's working. What's, what's not working, but that is, that's a leap. Few are able to maybe escape the, that the ego or the control trap, you know, and they're, they're going to hold on to that. Yeah. Empowering and delegating is something that, we should maybe double click on and, and talk about. I've always understood delegation as like, I don't have time for this. Um, you know, I'm going to take stuff off my plate and you're going to do this. Empowering is this idea of, I actually think you can be better at this than I am. And I believe in you. And I'm going to give you some rope here to try to figure it out. Cause in the long run, our team, our organization is going to be better off with you doing this rather than, than me. Uh, does that track or is that distinction limited? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on delegating compared to empowering? Yeah, I hear that word delegating. I think of the Eisenhower box, you know, just what, what do I not have time for? Oh, I can delegate to that people, to, to people. I mean, I, I think the word, yeah, I think I like what you're talking about or how you define empowering. I, I think the problem is oftentimes people operate within this polarity of either or, like either I'm going to have control and make the decision or I'm going to give them 
the you know complete autonomy to 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 do whatever but yet when i see leaders do that with players or their their staff um or their team members within their organization what i see there is the second that they screw up they go well that's why i don't give people that autonomy right you know and, and yet what you want to do is both, right? You want to still be involved. You want to be teaching. You want to be training them, you know, working through that, giving them feedback and, and, and but giving them space to be creative, to do their best work. And so I, I, I mean, it's a simple way in a sports example, I'd give us like the coach that allows the, the assistant coach, the opportunity to run the drill. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. You can come up with the drill. You run it. And then the coach doesn't like it. They go, okay, well, they're not really like, doesn't give them that opportunity. Instead of sitting down going, okay, well, what do you think? And the coach might have really good perspective. Well, it didn't go well or it did, you know, but then, you know, the head coach may be able to offer some perspective into that to provide feedback. So I think it, for, for me, I see, you know, I use that sports example because that's so many of the clients I work with, but that's just, that's a, that's a big area there. Um, are we training them up? Are we giving them space? Are we giving them feedback? You know, are we helping them to facilitate, you know, helping to facilitate reflection if that's, if they lack, you know, that self-awareness. Yeah. I love that you brought polarities. I think we're both fans of polarities and the power of and instead of or. And it's interesting because for leaders, and I, I hear this, it's like, okay, so the leader says, I need to empower them or I need to let them do it. And then they back off. Well, they're not leading if they do that. Right. And so knowing when they need to have final say. And when they need to say, Hey, this is the direction we're going in. And I believe in it and I'm convicted in it because I've been curious and we've had a lot of input and we've had a lot of collaboration and now it's time to actually go. And that's the direction we're going in. And if it goes poorly, then the leader can raise their hand and be like, I made the wrong decision and I led us in the wrong way. I'm sorry. I apologize. And I think Leaders do need to be able to make those decisions and own them. And I think most of our organizations do require that sort of structure. If you have a leaderless team, it's really hard to take any action. And I go back to that entrepreneur sort of concept that I was thinking about. It's like, yeah, we need to collaborate and there needs to be some final say here. It doesn't always have to be the quote unquote top of the pyramid or the leader but we do need someone to take ownership and at the end of the day say, all right, this is the direction we're going. I'm going to put my neck out because I believe in it. And if I'm wrong, I will own it and they'll have ownership over it. Yeah. And I think too, oftentimes when we go for these empowering moves, we like move people into a new role where now they've got complete ownership and they've of the results and the performance of a certain part of the, of, of the team, the organization. Right. And I think more often than not, we could probably try some little experiments on the fringes and allow them to try out different things and see how that goes and, and kind of just play around with it, you know, so that it's kind of uh, safe to fail. You know, if it's not, it's not the end of the world if it doesn't go well. And I think taking the stakes out of that, like high stakes opportunities for people to, to, take on ownership of things, you know, it's better for both parties. <laughs> they're they're going to be stepping in there. They're going to probably be more likely to succeed with something smaller. That's not, you know, the end of the, or, you know, the team or the organization are going to completely destroy quarterly results for a business. Right. So it's just taking that, those small steps. And it's also good for the, 
the owner that had coached the leader of, of that organization too, so that they can, you know, be re fairly regulated in those conversations when, when things aren't exactly the way they want them or the results don't, aren't delivered. There's a theme that you're hitting on here that you hit on before, which is pain. And so how do we have sort of micro pain that's not going to throw us completely off course, but maybe there's an opportunity to learn through that pain. There's a story of pain. You're running ultra marathons. Pain is going to be part of that journey and that process. Uh, you also mentioned in your book, having a panic attack and how that pain also led you into the work that you're doing now. So I'd love for you to talk about pain and how you leverage pain to guide your work and also how you see pain guiding work in the organizations or the people that you work with. Mm. Yeah, I, I, really insightful question. And I just love what you're picking up on there. You know, there's a few things that I, I would say. One is oftentimes there's, uh, I'll, I'll go two, two ways with this. Okay. The first is pain for us as leaders. And one is pain for our athletes, right? So, or team members, part of an organization. For me as a leader or in coaching leaders, they typically come to me when they're really growth orientated. They're really, really driven. They're just looking for an edge, right? Or they people come to me to work on their leadership because they're experiencing enormous amounts of pain and suffering as a leader and they have nowhere else to turn. Um, I think sometimes pain reaching those, 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 you know, kind of those rock bottoms. Um, I forget who said it, but it comes, it becomes the foundation upon which you can build, build, build up from there. Right. So sometimes I think those painful moments, they teach us a lot, but they also make us desperate to, to, to try new things, to experiment with new things and to get outside the box. Because I think so oftentimes as leaders, we, we, we are not willing to take new risks, right. That are going to result in, um, you know, completely new ways of thinking about leading our team or running our organization. I think the other thing that I try to leverage within culture is just understanding the pain or the consequences that are naturally occurring when we are not as leaders or team members doing what we've agreed to as far as the standards and how we, how we want things to be done here. And just exploring what those natural consequences are, those nat natural pain is for failing to do those things is something we often kind of try to bring, use as constantly bringing people's attention to, you know, their behaviors, how it's impacting others, how it's impacting themselves, how it's impacting the experience of everyone there. And sometimes just bringing their attention to the, the consequences that have already come up because of what they've done, or that may come up as a result of this down the road, just highlighting that and shining a light on that is enough to drive sometimes behavioral change within, within the organization. If we're just aware of, you know, the pain, if we don't fall through on some of those things that we've, we've committed to do, um, you know, I think that's another way we leverage it as well. I spent most of my educational career thinking about the individual. So sports psychology, I went to Georgetown thinking about how do I help executives? And while I was at Georgetown, I think is when I started to think, gosh, I got a blind spot, which is on the organization and the culture. And you can go study, you know, how to work with organizations and there are graduate degrees and I've looked into them. Um, but I've been trying to capture like, what's my definition of culture? Like, what is this thing that I know it when I see it and we all talk about? 
And there's like five different elements that that I've picked up on, and I'm curious to riff on them with you. Um, so the one that I often hear is it's the worst behavior we tolerate. So uh, there's always going to be bad behavior and a culture tolerates bad behavior. Um, but then on the flip side, it's the best behavior we reward. What do you promote for? What do you um, give bonuses for? Uh, and then what do you fire for? Like what's, what behavior do you not tolerate in your book? You call them non-negotiables. Like what are the non-negotiables here? Um, and then you mentioned behavior, uh, before I started on this path and our behavior is often driven by our language. And I love studying teams, especially sports teams. And you notice the language that they use and you can hear the same language that they're using. And that language drives behavior, which impacts culture. And then the last part is do we promote based on merit or based on politics? And obviously that's a black and white type of thinking, but I definitely think that there are organizations that are more political and then there are others that are more merit-based. doesn't mean the merit-based doesn't have politics and doesn't mean the politic-based doesn't have merit. Those are some things, but I haven't like thought like culture. We hear people say culture is your behavior. It's simple. That's it. Or culture is the worst behavior you tolerate. That's it. It's, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a combination and a a melting pot of sort of all of those types of things. For you, people are going to you to define culture. Uh, what comes to mind for you? Where do you start? Where do you, what? How do you get clarity around what culture is? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think that that's always a great starting point before you dive into like strategies or ideas around building culture. For me there's been a lot of times around like what it feels like to be a part of this organization, I think is, is one, one question kind of to you in, in the same vein of what you're talking about there. What does it feel like to be a part of this organization? How do people do things here? Why do they do things the way that they do them? You know, and understanding those, I think are some questions that help to, to help me understand what's going on in an organization. So, so those are some of the questions I'm asking before I start working with a leader and, and their team or their organization I think in the other side of that, though, I I really try to find a way to measure it. And I'm, this, I'm not going to say there's anything super scientific about this, but for me, I look at it from a relation. I use like a graph and on the X, X axis, I, I have like the relationships, the connections, like how strongly are people connected here? And then on the Y axis, I always try to measure it through the standards, the behaviors. How do we do things here? on a consistent basis when leader, when leadership's around, when leadership isn't around, like what, how do people do things here? And I think if you look at really strong cultures where there's high standards of behavior, they do things well, typically you're going to have strong relationships, right? Like people care about each other. People feel connected. They're connected to a, you know, a singular goal or purpose and vice versa. You don't have really strong relationships with people. There's not high levels of trust. If you don't actually treat each other well, work hard, you know, hold each other to a high standard. And so I think if the relationships are really strong and the behaviors are at a high level, you know, working hard, we're having great attitudes, we're doing those things, you're going to have a place that you want to be at, that want to work at or want to play at every day. And you're going to have good performance based upon the individuals, right? That, that you have within that, you know, the connected group, that works hard. Like that, that's kind of it. So I've kind of used that as, as my measuring tool for, Hey, where are we on, uh, on these things here? You talk about transformational leadership in alignment with relationship building and standards. And 
in the book, it's really sort of, you can tell that you are a fan of transformational leadership and that you probably desire to be around transformational leaders. And yet in sports, I've been around some of the most successful sports coaches that I would definitely describe as transactional. And this is kind of something that I see in business as well, where if people are really clear that, no, this is a business and we're transactional and this is what it is and it's a job and you know, you've got your family, that's your family. This is a job. You're here to do your job. And even that phrase, do your job to me screams transactional. It doesn't scream like, I, this might be oversimplifying it, but I think of Pete Carroll and his book, Win Forever, being about relationship building and being about this idea of developing humans holistically. And then I think of Bill Belichick's book, Do Your Job. And I know you talk about both of them in your book and the cultures that they've created um, and things that they've done along the way to maybe change and evolve as well. But I want to just talk about transactional leadership because I've worked with people who would rather be in a transactional culture and will say, let me do my job and then let me go home and be with my family. I don't need to develop. I don't need to grow. I just want to execute. Um, and I just want to make deals, make money, and then be a great husband or wife or whatever they want to be. Can you talk about how you think about transactional and transformational and how that impacts the culture uh, of the organizations that you're around? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. Like there's plenty of transactional leaders that can get results and they can be successful when it comes to the bottom line, you know, money wins or whatever that is. I think it, you know, it really depends on the people. And I, I don't, I'm not going to hear to go out and say, well, everyone should want to be a transformational leader. Like you, you've got to get to a place in your life where you sit back and say, you know what, the way that I'm doing things right now doesn't really lead to a lot of fulfillment on my part, or potentially even for my employees or my, my team members. And it's not really promoting like human flourishing and happiness, right? Like it's, it's limiting that. And I care about something other than the bottom line. Like if you only care about the bottom line, I'm sure there's plenty of people you could find that will tell you, you can do it just well as a transactional leader. Um, but it, we're looking at trying to move beyond that, right? So people that are interested in fulfillment and human flourishing, right? In their jobs, they understand the interconnectedness between our home life and how we show up at work, right? They know that exists. And so I think that that's why there's probably a greater call for, for, for transformational leadership in today's world where people are not just looking to get more out of people. They're looking to give them an experience, give them an opportunity for growth, um, to nurture that. So yeah, like transactional leadership may be for some people. I, I was in that mindset, but I didn't even realize it. That's the thing. The funny thing about it, my, my, is I didn't even realize I was in that, that kind of that mindset because it's, I think I just want to share this. It's more than just the philosophy, right? You can, you can talk about like, Oh, we care about people here and people matter, you know, people over profits. You can have all these fancy slogans. You can have all these great missional statements or these core values, but it really comes down to is for difference between transactional and transformational leadership. Isn't so much your philosophy as much as do you have behaviors that align with that philosophy and is your strategy within how you run your organization and your culture, does that align with that philosophy? Yeah, I was listening to a podcast with the founder of Kinko's 
and I was on how I built this with Guy Raz and he was talking about that. You shouldn't love your job. Like you should love your family. You should get fulfillment out of your work. You should enjoy the challenges that present it. But he said too often people fall in love with their work and then they neglect other areas of their life that require love. And so it's something that I think a lot about, like, for me, I like to marry the two. I like to, you know, be similar with my kids and my family and at work. But I'd imagine for others that are in finance or in business or real estate where they're working with like tangible, fungible things, that's harder to do. And um, I think to me, it's okay if you can compartmentalize, if you can say, I accept this is what my job is. And then I have all these other parts of my identity where I'm different. And it's something that, you know, I'm realizing when I coach people is to try to find out what success looks for like for them and what they want. And for some it is, no, I'm going to stay in this career because it provides security. It provides me um, a level of autonomy um, and allows me to tap into these other parts of me outside of my work. When you ask someone who they are, like the answer to that question is so broad and so vast, even for you, like before we started, I said, what do you want to talk about? And you're like ultra marathons. And I'm like thinking, all right, we're going to talk about culture. And we ended up talking about culture and talking about we, but that's not even something I knew about you. I'm curious, like what led this guy to move to Ireland? Like that's fascinating to me. And we don't always understand that there are more pieces to our identity than than just a work bucket. And the work bucket is a big bucket that we're going to spend a lot of time on, but so is family, so might health, so might friendships or relations, so might spirituality, so might a hobby of playing a guitar or playing golf or whatever it is that you're doing. So I'm on a little bit of a rant right now, um, but I want to bring it back and I want to bring it into this idea of love or family. We hear sports teams or businesses say we're a family or we're a family business or we're family. Even, I mean, how many high school sports teams say, you know, one, two, three, their team, and then four, five, six family. It's like every single one that I've ever heard uses family. What are your thoughts on family being used in a business context or in a uh, sport context as far as culture goes? So, I think it's important. I'm, I'm going to make this before I share my thoughts on the word family. Those type of words or core values or missional statements or these acronym type things, but like family, you know, like, or things like that, that coaches talk about, Hey, I want this to be a family or players say that like, if that's authentic, that's true to them. Great. For me, I absolutely can't stand the use of family around sports. And I used to use it right a lot because to me, family is is so much more than the, the team, right? Like family is blood. There is something so much deeper. And, and so I kind of somewhat resonate with the Kinko's CEO and that. But I think what people are at, really getting at is they want it to feel like a family and what 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 family brings um, to them, that sense of connection. And I think this is really profound. And I think this is probably speaks to today's culture and why there's maybe a call for more transformational leadership because, because they want to come to a place and work with it. It feels like a family or they feel connected. They feel essentially they, people want to show up at a place where they feel seen, known, and loved. And I think when you look at the rise in, you know, mental health issues and challenges, when you see all that, that statistics, right, there's 
there's, I think there's this lacking, all the research would show that we're lacking connection, that real connection, whether it's in our homes, our family life, um, you know, our schools, our, our, our relationships and our friendships. I mean, there's to, to say it's one thing or the other is to ignore the complexity of the world and the, or the complexity of our lives, right? There's many factors that at play there, but I think people are craving it more than ever. And I, so I think, you know, my, my wife works at Google and you can see that this new generation of people coming in there, they, they're craving that type of environment they create there where there's these social connections and people feel cared about. And, you know, they're having one-on-ones with their employees and they're not employee development plans. They're personal development plans. She has a personal development plan to develop her as a person, right? This is at a large company that they're doing this. So, you know, the, the boss is sitting down with her and talking to her about her family and, you know, you know, they're sharing stories around what it's to be like to be a mother, right? So they're, I think that word family just points to people's desire for more connection. And that connection, I'll say this real quick. The research shows, I spent a lot of time on studying Dr. Bruce Perry and his work. Uh, he wrote the book, What Happened to You with Oprah, you know, just one of the world's leading trauma psychiatrists. And what he's found, as well as other researchers, is that potentially, in most cases, more healing than therapy itself is just being part of a, of a connected group like a sports team where an athlete could show up that has been through something traumatic or is just stressed in life, can show up and is getting not that 60-minute dose of connection with a the therapist, but they're getting constant little doses of, hey, we see you, we know you, we care about you, we, you belong here. And what that can do for someone that's experienced extreme trauma or just someone that's just in a constant state of heightened stress, right, um, is huge. It's it's more potent and, and powerful than any, you know, sometimes any any treatment that that most people could get or any pill they could take. It's, it's, it's incredible what culture can mean to people. And that's why I think we associate it with that word family, because it connects to the power. I remember meeting with an NBA head coach. He had just taken over a team. I met with him and I was listening to him and what he was trying to build. And I literally said, connection is the word. Um, and I created this whole document around connected and I'll, I'm not going to use the team's name. And I was like, what would it look like for you to be the most connected team? And you know, you're a basketball coach, like connected on defense, connected on offense. You can use it in so many different ways. And that word connected to me, there are families that are not connected. There mm -hmm. are friends that are not connected. We have social media, which was designed to connect us and it's failing miserably at causing us to stay connected in one way. In another way, we probably don't have this conversation if it's not for social media. So that word connection sticks with me. And I think about a podcast that I listened to when I was preparing for our conversation with Monty Williams, who has been a head coach in the NBA for a number of years and is a, a stalwart in the NBA and has really been when you hear him talk, it's almost like this is a mentor. This is a leader. This is someone that I admire uh, professionally. And I think personally as well, having never met him, but listening to him being interviewed. Um, and he said something in your interview that struck me where he said um, he shifted away from focusing on culture and more to focusing on people. And when he said that, it struck me. It was like, okay, what is that? What's the distinction between focusing on culture and, and focusing on people? So I'd love to get your perspective on that, especially from a lens of connection and what we were just talking about. 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm fortunate to have spent some time with him and 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 know him and and what he's about. And he is uh, that transformational leader that I think you know. If you're looking for that role model, he's one that you'd want to want to look to more often. Um, that shift from culture, I think, is oftentimes because what I think it's associated with. Um, when it comes to like the team culture building, like I think there's a lot of connotations when people think around culture and what that means. Okay, we're gonna get the team, we're gonna have a lot of team meetings, and we're gonna we're gonna do these activities. Like I think there there is so much of that that people, like a coach or a leader, business organization, it's the it's the offsite. We're all gonna get it. We're all gonna go canoeing. We're all gonna go kayaking, and we're gonna build our culture. And probably the most important way to build actually culture and, and, and of an organization is to focus just on the people and some more on the conversations that you're having, the one-on-ones that you're having. And so I think he is talking about that shift from less of those team type things, activities, and more focusing on building relationships with each of those individuals, having that level of trust, knowing about them, knowing what's going on in their life what they struggle with, what they're, you know, what's keeping them from, you know, their potential, not just on the court, but off the court. And so it's, it's, it's really trying to invest more of our time in the one-on-ones than these kind of these big demonstrations of culture, these big mission statements and values plastered on a wall. And those things are bad, but it's just like, like you said, like that's the shift. It's just more on those people, those individuals. Yeah. And you're talking about your book, The Power of Vulnerability. You mentioned the Buffalo Bills and they would have people tell a story about someone who inspired them and share it with the group. And, you know, the whole team would go through it and there'd be tears and crying. And, um, you know, you have big 300 pound men doing that. It can be a powerful element. And I'm thinking about uh, psychological safety and how you mentioned your wife, works at Google. They had this big study and they found that psychological safety was one of the key ingredients that led to high performing teams. And I think about vulnerability without psychological safety and how dangerous it is, how dangerous it is to open up if there are then consequences for what we open up about. So if I share something personal about me, but then I'm going to get cut from the team because I shared that element of me, what does that look like? How does that feel? Like what happens there? And so I'm thinking about connection and I'm thinking about people and yet let's just stay in sports. We cut, we trade, we don't resign. Like there are brutal transactional zero sum you win or you lose business decisions that are made that go against the current of, you know, the desire to create a psychologically safe environment or to be vulnerable. And so how do we create, a environment that is psychologically safe so that people can take risks and go for it while understanding that there are also consequences if we don't succeed. Yeah. I think it's about avoiding the tyranny of the or that you're having to choose one or the other. And so often I hear that people's language is like, well, then the day, like we just have to, we have to win if we want to keep our jobs here. Um, or we have to make money if we want to keep our jobs. That's, that's obviously true, but they're not, mutually exclusive, they're mutually enhancing. And it kind of comes back to the old C.S. Lewis quote, when you put first things first, second things are enhanced. The bottom line will usually be enhanced. So can you continue and invest in your people knowing that the law in the long term, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, the results are going to have a better chance of being 
what you want them to be. So when it comes to that, that psychological safety, I, I also think that some cultures, some teams, some organizations in, a, in trying to create that psychological safety, avoid the conversation around results, right? It's it, for, in a sports example, it's the coach that really cares about his player, but can't sit him down and say, well, listen, you're not going to play that much because you don't work that hard or you're not that good. You're not as talented as the 10 guys in front of you. And so now we destroy, we really do destroy trust from these types of things because we can't talk about the realities, which is, hey, we love you. We're a family here. But at the end of the day, these people are the people that are playing. These are the people that are getting the promotions. These are the people are getting raises because they did perform at that level. It doesn't, it doesn't make you less valuable as a human being but as an athlete or as a, as a team member, like they have more, they're bringing more to the organization in this moment, right? They're, they're delivering, they made more sales, whatever it is. So it's being able to have those conversations in conjunction to be able to look people in the eye and say, Hey, I still care about you. We still value, still invest them, still make time for them, support them, support their growth without just completely forgetting about that other conversation, which is, Hey, results do matter here. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Jack Easterbay, who I think became a friend of yours, uh, who worked with the New England Patriots after Aaron Hernandez uh, left, and, and that's been well documented. Then he goes on to Houston and is heavily involved with their team and the team building there. And I've talked to a lot of general managers, specifically in the NFL, about how do you build a team? And look, like this is a sport that is physical, violent, is tough. Um, you know, when someone says, we need a bunch of dogs, um, like, that's a different culture uh, that exists. And I've talked to GMs about it. It's like, all right, we need to draft with character in mind. Well, how are you defining character? What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it sound like? And by the way, you're also taking people that are 18 to 22 years old that come from a, a large uh, range of cultural dynamics uh, at play. If you were advising an NFL team to build uh, an intentional culture. And I love how you talk about Messiah soccer saying, we're going to be intentional about everything. Like this is called the intentional performers podcast. So that, that sort of jumped out at me, but if you're advising um, an NFL team, let's just focus on that sport because I think it's a good example of, all right, we might have a vision for what we want this to be ideally. And there are going to be times where we might have to sacrifice uh, or bend or be flexible in what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. How do you think about those dynamics at play so that you can build an intentional culture while also making sure that you have the talent that you need to succeed? Yeah. So I, I would look at a few factors when it comes to this whole thing around talent and character, which is, I think what you're kind of getting at, you know, is when do you take ch chances on the person with maybe lower character, but higher talent and, and, and vice versa? Am I correct? Yeah, vice versa is actually fascinating because I think teams sometimes overvalue the character. And I know for me, like my blind spots are that I'll overvalue the character. Look, I'm a five foot six guy who wanted to be the next John Stockton, like, um, and I was nowhere near John Stockton. And so I have always fallen in love with the underdog and the guy whose work ethic is incredible. And, and sometimes I'm right, but other times 
I am really wrong because my definition of character is too narrow and I miss on some other pieces to that person's character identity. We hear this a lot in the NBA with superstars is like what makes them unique, what makes them special is a lot of times they're a little different and uh, you know, they might communicate differently. So yeah, it it can go either way, right? Like I Mm -hmm. see mistakes being made where we overvalued the character or there's other mistakes where we overvalued the talent and we missed on the character. And I don't know how to, how to handle that. I don't know how to make sense of that. Yeah. And I look at like three, three, three main factors. And the first is like, what is the character of the athlete? And, you know, we say, oh, high character, low talent, like as, or low, you know, low character, high talent, as if we actually know that as definitive. But the reality is like character is really hard to assess, probably harder to assess than even talent. Right. You know, like uh, that is really difficult, but we work with coaches in sports to actually assess across the board coaches to look at all the athletes and say, okay, where do we see them on some of those character traits that we're looking for when it comes to performance character traits, you know, competitive, resilient, and more of those moral, ethical, relational character traits of compassionate, caring, selfless, right? And, and look at your current athletes. We get rate them on a scale. And we use that as like our barometer and like, okay, so all of a sudden what's actually a nine out of 10 and what's a four out of 10? Well, it's, oh, it's a four out of 10 is so-and-so. Oh gosh, we never want that. You know, like, so it helps people to take it and make it a little bit more qualitative, less subjective, but you're still a lot of subjectivity in that. But the, the, the cool thing is to have a conversation, getting people to talk about, okay, what, what is character to us and what does it actually look like? right? Within our athletes and then the behaviors they demonstrate. So you you look at character and obviously you probably have some non-negotiables. We just can't go to less than a four on these markers. We just, we haven't been able to have anybody that we've been successful with when it comes to that. The second thing is the quality of your coaching, right? I mean, I think the real quality of a coach is, or a leader is their ability to reach the unreachables, right? Where the other coach or the other leader couldn't reach that individual, but that was really talented. Like, can you find a way to get to them? Whether it's you, people you bring in, like a Jack used to be at the Patriots, right? Like, like those types of people. But can you find a way to get them to kind of buy in and to, to, to align and help them to grow? So that requires you to probably improve your coaching, your ability to mentor, to ability to, to guide, to lead, to help grow people. And you have to improve your skill set, your tools. The, the last thing I would look at is the, you know, what is the strength of your culture? So what is the strength of their character? What is the strength of your leadership or your coaching? And then what is the strength of your, uh, of your culture? And there are two things I look at when the culture is where, what is it, where does it currently, right? And so if we're really strong and we've got a lot of great leaders in the locker room or, you know, and, you know, wherever it is, you know, if in an organization, but we have strong th- place, things in place as far as people, then we know that they can call those individuals up. They have a better chance of doing that. But if the culture is struggling, right, you probably don't want to be at that point where you're taking a lot of risks um, on individuals that, that, that you know, because you're just going to really struggle in that. And, and so it's, you know, the people in your culture, but also the kind of the, the intentionality. How much of your things do you actually have in play as far as some of the strategies that are able to make the standards clear of how we do things here, support those behavioral standards and enforce those things. 
And if you in your organization struggle with accountability, you struggle holding people to standard, you struggle to support, you know, individuals that are testy, emotional, you know, often become very easily dysregulated. Like then you, then you probably need to get those things in place before you start to take on some individuals that are going to probably struggle. So yeah, I always look at the character, but also look at your own leadership and then look at where your culture is. Yeah. I love how you say where your culture is. And I would also say where you're at. And I think a lot of times people are delusional as far as where they're at. And we had Sam Walker on the podcast. I know you're familiar with his work, Captain's Class, you mentioned in your book. And Sam talked about his work with LA Rams and that, you know, you have to check in on where you're at. Are you building? Are you contending? Or are you trying to sustain success? And that location piece, I think, is so essential because if I think we're trying to sustain success, my risk tolerance might be different than if we're trying to build something. And what are we trying to build? Maybe to your point, let's start primarily with building a, a, gr a ground level of culture. And so if we're in the building stage, maybe our risk tolerance is actually lower because we're just trying to build the culture right now. The challenge becomes in a in a world like professional sports. And by the way, we can go to business too, but I think especially in sports, there's a cutthroat nature where these people's jobs are on the line. And so they have to take certain risks to try to keep their job. And so it actually starts before all that with what kind of security someone has in their role and um, you know, how much psychological safety do you give them to make mistakes, but also an awareness on where are we? And I find so often organizations do a really poor job of locating legitimately where are we until someone else comes in and then they say, this is where you are because you made all these mistakes. Um, but why do you think that is hard for us to locate ourselves um, either individually, like you even said earlier, like I didn't realize I was being a transactional coach, but I was. So it's hard to locate where we are individually. And then it's hard for organizations to also locate, hey, this is where we are. And this is where our risk tolerance is when we're here, there, or somewhere else. How, how do you think about location? Yeah, I mean, locating yourself is probably like, is just more than half the battle, right? Like it's, it's, it's the start of everything. Where, where are we, where am I in this and awareness without awareness, we can't take ownership. We can't make change. And for me, uh, it comes to that mind trap of rightness, like believing that what I'm doing is the right way. And a little bit of my ego at play, like not wanting to be, to be wrong. Um, I was in this place of like, like I'm doing the best I can with what I know. So you can't come here and tell me I'm wrong when I'm already doing the best I can, right? Like it's just, you almost form these walls. At least it was for me. And I see that for a lot of other coaches as well too. I, I think the thing around the awareness piece is, or like to you talked about with location, too, is there's the fear factor of the results and people aren't willing to really just go, you know what? Okay. What if, what if we fail? Like, I think it's so caught up in, I think people are so afraid of losing the job of, of the, the team having the losing season and what that will mean for them. Like what's at stake for you and all that. And so they're constantly in a state of being triggered. So they're already on the defense because they're just living in fear in their jobs. And I see this a lot of professional organizations and collegiate organizations is I got to, I got a contract year coming up. I've got to win this year. 
And everyone in the organization is operating under this mentality. And so everyone's stressed. And when everybody's stressed and everybody's triggered, then we literally cannot step back, get on the balcony and see actually what's going on within us, how we're impacting others, how like this is miserable. I remember shortly, I remember being at the um, Phoenix Suns and I was watching one of their practices um, shortly after they had lost the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA finals. And I was talking to their staff and some of their coaches and just around the expectations, the pressure to win the championship the next year. And one of the coaches said, yeah, like it's obviously the expectation now and to not win it is a failure, but we don't want to go through this year and it'll be miserable and that'd be everything this is about. We're obviously going to go, we're going to pursue it. We're going to chase it. We're going after it, but we want to enjoy showing up every day. Now they didn't win it that year. They did go on and win, have the best record in the NBA and money got the NBA coach of the year. But I think about that, that's a, that's a really powerful way to see things there. Like, right. They became aware of what this could do to them, how this could trigger them. And they decided we have choice in this and we're going to choose to not give into the fear and not give into the pressure and expectations. Instead, we're going to choose to come and enjoy our work, be grateful for it every day. What allows you to not be afraid of running an ultra? That I'm so okay with failure. I'm so okay with it. I remember that morning, just like looking my friend in the eyes and being like, I, I honestly, I'm okay if I don't make this. Cause he's like, you're going to do it. You, I, you got this. I'm like, I was like, dude, I don't know. I literally don't know if I'm going to do this. I have never run more than 120 kilometers and I got to go do 80 more. I've never done this. I don't know if I'll do it, but I'm okay if I don't, because I know I can learn from this. And I, I think that's at the end of the day, like leaders have to ask themselves this within an organization. They have to go, what if I fail? What does that mean? And for some of us, we catastrophize it. We, we think we're going to be you know, homeless, living on the street, broke. Our family won't eat. Like we think of the worst case. That's just probably not the reality for most of us. I'm sure there are some situations where failure has led to that for certain individuals. But the, the probably the worst case scenario is that we give into the fear and then we lose the people in our life that are most important to us in this journey. And we become the leader that we despise, that we would never want to play for or work for. That's the real fear that we should be afraid of. And that's what we should be putting front and center for us. Not this, not this fear that probably doesn't actually have a lot of truth to it, right? Is losing your job the worst thing that ever happened to you? Go ask Pete Carroll. He'll tell you it wasn't. Go ask Bill Belichick. He'll tell you it wasn't. Where did that come from for you? That ability to let go of the fear? Yep. It came from experiencing it enough and, and knowing that those were the greatest moments for growth in my life. If, if you could just embrace that moment of, of failing and adversity, it, it absolutely sucks. And it's not like you're going in there to fail. And once I'm out on the trail, I'm like, there is nothing that's going to stop me. Now, the reality is I could be like the guy in front of me that fell and broke his ankle, right? There could be something that stopped me. But in that mindset, I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop me. But I also was still open to the fact of like, okay, if I fail, 
it doesn't reflect on me. I'm not going to be embarrassed about that because I'm going in here and I've done what I've done everything I can within the boundaries that I set myself. And I, I just mentioning this as well. When I set out to run that ultra, I knew I could train and probably close the gap and be 90% sure of finishing it. But a Masogi is a 50% chance of failure. I was not about to set aside my entire family's life and my business and put on the back burner for a year to train for this. I said, I'm going to go out. I'm going to train an hour every day run. And on the weekends, I'm going to do four hour runs. That's it. And I said, I'll just do the best. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to hydrate. I'm going to learn. I'm going to try to be smart, but I'm not spending more time outside of that because I'm not letting other parts of my life suffer. And I was okay with that. Yeah, there's acceptance and appreciation. And there's a theme as I sort of think about our conversation over the last hour where we're focused on you, the individual, and your capacity to embrace pain in order to grow and learn and in order to enhance. And you used that word enhance earlier. And I'm thinking about all the work that you do and what would it look like for a culture to embrace pain as an opportunity to learn so we can enhance our culture? And what return would that have on our organization or our team? Uh, and so I'm I'm just like sitting with it. And then I'm thinking about there's a line where I'm going to embrace pain, but not to a level where I'm not willing to ask for help to reduce the pain uh, or not look to create a support system so that I can still compete. And um, obviously that can get to unhealthy places when people go into embracing pain too much and they become addicted uh, to something. And so there's this line that each of us has to navigate whether we're leading an organization or leading ourselves where we have to be okay with failure, embrace pain, and also not just sit in that for the sake of sitting in that and make sure that we're willing to also ask for others to help call us up or, or pick us up to help us get to where we want to go. And I'm, I'm like sitting in that space and wondering about it for me. I'll just share my personal, like I'm not someone who loves to do hard things physically but I love to do hard things emotionally and mentally. And so I think when I hear ultra, I get intimidated because physical pain does not excite me. But if I'm being honest, like I'm the guy that will have a conversation with someone who attempted to kill themselves and be very comfortable being uncomfortable in that space. Or I'm the guy who's willing to go on a retreat and not have their cell phone for a day. And it, you know, I, th those things that others would maybe think is hard for me, like, yeah, well, what's the worst that can happen in those situations? I think maybe we all have the capacity to do hard things. And instead of just thinking about, you know, I think of like Jesse Itzler during this conversation and we've had Jesse on and I've spoken to Jesse a lot over the years. And when I see Jesse, I'm like, this guy's a maniac. Like he's an ultra marathon running, you know, cold plunging, sauna loving, like he lives at a different cadence and tempo mm -hmm. to physical pain that I don't have a desire to get to. But perhaps there's a line that connects all of us in our relationship with pain to enhance the world around us. And maybe that is something that we all need to chew on and think about, which is how are we lo looking to grow and what does that look like? And pain for JP may be different than pain for me and maybe different from Jesse. And maybe that's something we all need to think about a little bit more.
Yeah, I, I love that because I think there's a pain point. There's just, or you could just take it down a notch and just say discomfort or, you know, being uncomfortable, you know, like and having uncomfortable conversations, right? There's probably the, the person in our family, there's a person on our team and our organization that we're avoiding that conversation, which is actually probably creating more pain for us in our life than if we just leaned into that uncomfortable, painful conversation, whatever you want to call it, and had that hard conversation and did that in the right way, right? There's probably the phone call we need to make, the investment we need to make and, and, and hire. Like for me, it was like hiring a leadership coach to work with me, you know, eight, seven, eight years ago. Like, ooh, that's 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 hard to make that sacrifice. That's painful to invest in that as a, you know, at the time, a poor high school basketball coach and teacher. Um, but do you know what would have been way more painful is to continue down this path that I was on. So I, I think there's a lot of, just trying to get people to engage in some discomfort, but in a healthy way, you know, like it's not just charge into it, not be intentional or like there's, there's just trying to have some intention within that. And that's where I'm like, I mean, I think it's cool that you're a guy you were mentioning there, but like I ran that and people are like, Oh my gosh, is this gonna be your thing. You're gonna run ultras. You're gonna go run 500 miles next. And I'm like, nah, like, like I'm looking for another opportunity for growth. Like, some painful run across the mountains. Like it's got to have purpose. It's got to have intense. It's not just upping my pain. It's not just stretching the, the tolerance there. You know, like I, I start my mornings with a cold shower most days. Like I do stuff like that, but like, I'm not trying to break records in that of running and all that. Like that's for some people, but for me, I'm looking for where's the next way to stretch myself. Where's the next way to, to enter into some of that discomfort. Yeah. And I think we always just connect pain to growth, but there's other ways to grow. You can grow through success. You can grow through relationships. You can grow through, you know, studying whatever text you want to study. Uh, you can grow from reading books. I know you read, you read a book a week. Like there's, you can grow from watching a documentary. Like I'm watching the Kelsey documentary. And I think there's a lot of interesting pieces in that documentary. And so I, I think also humans need to think about and myself included, like, where do we grow? And I can grow from a nature walk like that is very enjoyable and pleasant and peaceful. I grow from going out to dinner with my wife or having a deep conversation with my parents. Like there's all kinds of opportunities to grow. I do this podcast. I enjoy it. It's actually not painful. Now, getting the logistics and getting the technology and getting, you know, everything up and running. Yeah, there's some pain involved. But I think each of us need to think about just where do we grow and where do we want to grow? Um, and I'll sort of leave with like, these two ideas, which is one, I made a change years ago from focusing on happiness to focusing more on feeling alive and trying to lean into the things that really make me feel alive. Um, and those things sometimes involve pleasure and, and joy, um, but also sadness and bitterness. Um, and then also I was thinking about this as you were talking, which is when we lose sleep and like I was losing sleep over something last night, uh, a relationship. And I love that you sort of said, Hey, we need to confront those things, even if they're uncomfortable. And so you're leaving me with that gift, which is like that relationship I need to con confront and need to challenge. And the longer it takes for me to do that, the more sleep I will lose. And perhaps that sleep loss is telling me to move and to go do something about it. I think the things that we lose sleep over, sometimes they're passion, sometimes they're excitement, and sometimes they're anxiety, but they're often 
sort of challenging us to maybe take some action. And so I'm leaving with that gift. Literally last night, I was losing sleep over something and I'm thinking about I'm losing sleep because it's something I want to confront, but it's going to be uncomfortable doing so. And I want to lean into that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that resonated with you. And I, I really resonate with the whole, you know, pursuing things that will make you feel more alive rather than just pursuing happiness. I know that that really resonates with me and my hope for my children and just even for my family. I think the thing that makes me uneasy was is oftentimes when we say or parents say, I just want my kids to be happy. And like as that, that's we're just we're pursuing that at all costs. Like that's our focus. And obviously we all want for our kids to be happy, but that can't be, we know all the research shows us and as well as the philosophers or, you know, type people, the Victor Frankl's of the world. Like if you pursue that at all costs and that is your primary focus, you will just move further and further and further away from it. Right. Because you're just oftentimes chasing pleasure things. And what you talk about there is just leaning into tougher emotional moments, like, uh, sadness like that's 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 really powerful so thank you for that awesome jp if people want to follow you online where's the best place for them to do that uh you can go to my website tocculture.com my email is jp nurbin n-e-r-b-u-n at tocculture.com and then i'm uh i'm on twitter uh occasionally at jp nurbin yeah i always say you're either on Twitter, X, or whatever the heck the name of the company will be <laughs> when this publishes. Uh, JP's got two books that you also should check out, Calling Up, Discovering Your Journey to Transformational Leadership, which is in 2019, and then The Culture System, A Proven Process for Creating an Extraordinary Team Culture, which came out in 2022. Um, JP, it's been wonderful getting to know you uh, over the last few months. I'm excited for you to continue your learning journey um, and to continue to learn alongside you. I'm on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called, at Brian Levinson, and LinkedIn's the other place I like to play, at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. JP, thanks and enjoy your evening in in Ireland. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We work with coaches in sports to actually assess across the board coaches to look at all the athletes and say, okay, where do we see them on some of those character traits that we're looking for when it comes to performance character traits, you know, competitive, resilient, and more of those moral, ethical, relational character traits of compassionate, caring, selfless, right? And, and look at your current athletes. We rate them on a scale and we use that as like our barometer and like, okay, so all of a sudden what's actually a nine out of 10 and what's a four out of 10? Well, it's, oh, it's a four out of 10 is so-and-so. Oh gosh, we never want that, you know? Like, so it helps people to take it and make it a little bit more qualitative, less subjective, but you're still a lot of subjectivity in that. But the, the, the cool thing is to have a conversation, getting people to talk about, okay, what what is character to us and what does it actually look like, all right? Within our athletes and then the behaviors they demonstrate.